Welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. On July 14th through 18th, Apple Shop and Imagining America, a national partnership of 100 colleges and universities based at Syracuse University in rural upstate New York, co-hosted a gathering. 45 people, faculty, students, and community members sponsored by nine institutions of higher education from Oregon, to Ontario, Canada, to Florida, all came to Whitesburg and Letcher County to learn about the economic revival just beginning in our mountains. The participants' goal was to take lessons home. In this episode of Mountain Talk Monday, some of those who made the trip speak about what motivates and challenges them as they work seeking solutions for their home places. Many rural communities and inner-city locations around the country are facing the need for economic transition. As we all deal with issues of failing industry, what many call brain drain, or the leaving of our young people to go to the cities for work, or uneasy race relations, you'll find many of the stories they share reflect people's struggles and hopes here in central Appalachia. This program is on the Unbroken Circle. And we are a group of participants from Imagining America and the Apple Shop Institute on Cultural and Economic Development. We just completed a very in-depth conversation earlier today where we created a circle that talked about the work that we all do in our various communities and the need to understand how we navigate race, racism, social injustices, and advocacy work that we do. And we are going to have a conversation about that unbroken circle. My name is Sonia Magnon. I'm from the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Let's talk about how we motivate or who motivates us to do the work that we do in community in light of issues of race and social justice and equity and sustaining ourselves in that. How do we gain our motivation or from whom? My name is Marion Rossi. I'm from Oregon State University. I think a lot of times as these conversations come up and the thing that forces me to think outward and to look inward is when I think about children and young people. And it's come up several times in the conversations over the last couple of days as I shared stories in story circles and as I try to express my frustration, my indignation at navigating these worlds where children are dying all around us. And even if they're not a child, they are somebody's child. And the force with which that kind of impacts my feelings and the kinds of things that I want to do in my life is maybe the most swelling thing that I have in terms of emotions. I, my wife and I don't have any children ourselves. That was a choice that we made. But the children that we see around us and at the university and in the grade schools, and then to recognize also in my nieces and nephews, and to know that every person that you see is someone's child and that they are dying 
every day and every week. We went there, we talked about that a lot this morning. I won't go there now, but I know that that's the thing that makes me think. And my job, I think, is to teach young people or help them come to understand who they are and how to love themselves. Because once you learn to love yourself as a unique human being, it's harder not to recognize and respect the uniqueness and value of others. And so that's my answer to that question. That lesson of teaching young people to love themselves is incredibly important. I'm Carrie Ann, a recent graduate of Lafayette College. That lesson of young people loving themselves was actually taught to me by my grandmother. That's why I would say she's my biggest inspiration and motivation. My grandmother, she's a trailblazer. That's the best way to, to describe her. She's actually an immigrant from Jamaica. She moved here to pursue a better life for her family, her grandchildren, and her own kids. She is very strong-willed, very confident, and she has passed that on to me as her granddaughter. I'm very proud of my grandmother, and one of the things I would always remember and not forget, she taught me that injustice anywhere is just unacceptable. Injustice here is injustice anywhere, and I will forever hold that with me. Well, the circle Be Unbroken has been singing in my heart since we closed the circle of 50 people this morning talking about race and class, similar to Carrie Ann. For me, I come to this work feeling a great connection to my grandfather. I'm Jamie Haft, and I am from a national organization called Imagining America, artists and scholars in public life. And my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. And as I learned about my grandfather's story, I felt there was a connection the universe winking at me because I had visited Apple Shop as a student 10 years ago and Apple Shop had instilled in me the appreciation for knowing where you come from and my grandfather happened to be in one of the only concentration camps focused on coal mining in the Holocaust and my father then as a goal for his children was to protect us from the pain that he had seen as the child of a Holocaust survivor. And so my father raised our family near Disney World and an ethos in our family was around dreams coming true. And so as I was sitting in the circle, then as a grandchild of a Holocaust survivor and a child of my father, I was just uh, feeling very motivated to see injustice and see pain and feeling very grateful to be around the circle of other people who are willing to look at difficult things. Uh, my name's uh, Hunter and I come from Oregon State University as well and I have a lot of people who I've met in my life who have molded me into the person I am today and I owe them you know pretty much everything and the first group would just have to be family because family 
family is the one thing that holds you together when you're young. They're the people who teach you everything you know, and that can sometimes be a negative thing, but that can also be a positive thing. When I say family, also, I include the people who you add to your family as you go along in your travels or in your studies. Coming from a small family, really only just two people, uh, my mom and my grandma, I wanted to create a sort of family where I could just talk with people and have the conversations that matter with people and just have a network since a majority of my life was spent without a network. And so my family, uh, like blood family, have inspired me, but also my family at Oregon State University have inspired me. Um, namely, you know, my professor and mentor, Charlene Martinez. She's inspired me with all the work that she does surrounding race and intersectionality and all of the complexities of social justice work at Oregon State University and in Oregon in general and in the nation uh, in a more broad scope. She's been the one who's made coming into college as like a first generation uh, college student seem doable and seem like it's a thing that you know I can actually pursue and not feel so lost in um, the academic structure even though academia is largely white culture it's largely designed for people who look like me and it's also hard when you come from a background where no one in your family's gone to college or you don't really come from money but it's nice having those people there to add to your family and that's why I'd say like familia es todo, family's all, and now I've added my partner to, to my family, and she's amazing, and really that's, that's what matters to me, and that's how I kind of keep my circle intact. When I'm not in circle settings, I just have circles with people. It can even be two people. I have my own circle with them, and I try to keep that intact at all times. Wow, my, I, I totally resonate with a lot of of what you all have said. I'm Sonia Magnon, again, from The Ohio State University. And I have many circles. My circles are very vast. My motivators, first and foremost, is family. My family immigrated here from the Dominican Republic. We uh, started off in Fairbanks, Alaska, and then ended up in Compton, California, right after the Watts riots. And I remember very vividly trying to locate myself within community when kids would come to my house and my mother and my grandmother are speaking Spanish and there's merengue playing and they're looking at us going, what are you? Because <laughs> you're brown skin, you speak English, but your mother is not speaking English. And my grandmother was speaking English, but her accent was so heavy, they couldn't understand her. My initial circle was very insulated to family. I was introduced into the arts very young in dance and theater and then that extended my family, but extended it in a way where it led me to do the work that I do around community and around social justice from an art and cultural perspective. And so that has motivated me over the years to continue that work. And now as a mother of two teenage brown-skinned boys in light of Black Lives Matter, or should matter, or does it matter in some instances, I am even more compelled to do the work that I do because their lives matter mm -hmm. and their lives are 
very important in their friends' lives. And Marion, when you talk about the children that motivate you, my house is full of children. Anyone that has teenage boys know that they run in packs. Mm -hmm. So I have a pack of 18-year-olds <laughs> and I have a pack of 15-year-olds <laughs> at my house all the time. <laughs> and they have all become my children. I am very motivated for their safety and for them growing into men that will continue to do this type of work. So as a follow-up to that, in terms of this work can be isolating, it can be exhausting, it can be fearful. How do we sustain ourselves in this work? I mean, we had a very, very deep, I don't know what, three-hour conversation this morning? Four hours, yeah. Four hours, Four that hours. was... You know, we had to take a break. I had to take a walk. I had to go down to the river and, <laughs> uh -huh. and scream, kind of get some energy from Mother Earth so mm -hmm. I could come back. And I almost didn't come back. But then I thought about my kids. It's like, no, you got to go back because you may need to say something or you may need to hear something that's being said. You know, it's very important that we sustain ourselves in this type of work. And how do we do that? You know, how do we, where do we get our energy from and how do we take care of self? And that's been a theme. Take care of self, make sure you take care of self. So what does that look like for us? I want to answer Sonia's question. And then I want to talk about my grandma just a little bit because mm -hmm. I just can't not. Yes. For me, and I don't intend this as a glib answer at all. Laughter is a huge part of it. Finding the things that move us towards joy and laughter, even in the midst of pain. And that doesn't mean that I, I hope anyway, that I don't attend to that pain and honor that pain or whatever it might be. But I'm also always in the midst of this, trying to find out where it is that we intersect, to borrow that word again, between mm -hmm. this slightly off-kilter, the strange, the odd, and the flat-out humorous, because I, I, I really believe that that is one of those universal things that tie us all together, regardless, is our ability to laugh and see that, among other things. And so laughter is part of what sustains me as much as my desire to do this or that. I'm going to talk about Grandma Rossi for just a second. <laughs> she just died in January, almost 103, a couple of months shy. Anunziata. We called her, well, I called her grandma, but people called her Anzi. Woman got more done in a morning than most people get done in a week. Until she was about 101. Uh, I mean, I, literally, I would go over, or, you know, from my dad's house, or uh, anyway, have coffee at 8 in the morning. She'd already started the bread, we did the garden, you know, and what are you doing, you know? And there was so much that I learned from her. She, too, went through the war, not as a Holocaust survivor, but as an Italian peasant whose home was basically invaded and occupied by people. And she raised children, and she and my grandfather brought my aunt and my father here basically with nothing and worked their way up. And I learned from her and from my grandfather the value of basically work, family, and church, and pretty much in that order. And that's all they knew. They didn't know how to read. They didn't know how to write. But coming out of them, my family, dad and aunt, first generation students that managed to both get graduate degrees, etc., etc., and then sort of a legacy of 
attention to others. My grandmother, I can remember, and this is one of my fairly early memories of her, one of those terrible times when we see all the horror of the world on the television screen. And I remember, you know, something on CNN or something, you know, uh, a war somewhere, I think it was in Eastern Europe, and terrible things were happening. And I looked over at my grandma and tears on her face and all, and she just kind of shook her head and said, those poor people, because they were living in that moment what she had known in the same way. Those three words, those poor people, have always sort of directed me out to remember that and connect in that way. So uh, shout out to Grandma Rossi, an amazing woman, and uh, uh, I will miss you. I want to shout out to my grandmother too because she just passed this year and she was 100. Very independent woman, lived in her own apartment until she passed away and we could not get her to move out of her apartment because she would always tell us, what if I want to have a boyfriend? <laughs> <laughs> so she stayed in her apartment for, in that same apartment, probably about 60 years in that same apartment. But yeah, she definitely taught me a lot. Taught me a lot. So shout out to my grandmother, Emilia Rodriguez Reimer. In the Jewish tradition, we say, may their memories be for a blessing. On the line of grandmas, I currently, when I'm uh, not in my college town of Corvallis, I'm 45 minutes south in Eugene, Oregon. Due to my circumstances, or uh, my family's circumstances, my mom is still homeless right now. And I live with my grandmother, and she's kind of helped raise me, or she took me in after... Uh, or my family kind of had like a falling apart and yeah shout out to grandmas and her name's Renee but she's powerful and she's kind of headstrong and I guess this kind of leads into what also sustains me in the work that I do not only at OSU but I feel like with my family as well because my grandma comes from pseudo rural Oregon her dad was a lumberjack. He's still alive now. He's like 85. Weighs the same that you know, the same weight uh, since high school, pretty much. And there's a lot of history with that, but it's um, you know mainstream history uh, with you know what they accept and what they kind of perpetuate in their lives as well. And it's interesting doing all this work that's trying to break barriers and realize injustices in our community and how to address them and then going back home to a grandmother who's still pretty close-minded and even a mom who's pretty close-minded. So I'm motivated not only by friends and what I do at my college but also by my family and trying to help them realize the impacts of how they think and also what that may mean for people who aren't like them or for people who are beginning to have voice and advocacy on a larger level or what my family's thoughts and actions could possibly do to like disenfranchise people or even take away from their enthusiasm or their will to do positive things. So yeah, I'd say my family also motivates me in that way. It sustains me. They help keep it real and they also give me an extra venue to help practice my skills with the people who I've known the longest. It's funny that we 
keep going back to the to grandmas because I'm actually going to talk about my grandma again (laughs) 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 because I learned how to sustain myself in this world when things seem to be topsy-turvy I I learned that from my grandmother from my grandmother I learned to have a faith in God to have a faith in the goodness of people and to have faith in love overall and that ultimately we as a people will overcome no matter what you identify as we as a people we as a people will overcome oppression and any hardship that you're going through right now overcoming that's just what we do that's what i learned from my grandmother as survivors that what that is what we do overcome well i have to do a lot to keep myself as a whole person and i even coming to this trip to apple shop broke down and became one of those people that brought a yoga mat. I never thought I'd be one of those people to get on an airplane and pack a yoga mat. But then as I laid it out, it felt so good every morning of this institute to stretch and to feel Mm -hmm. different parts of my body open. And then as we were talking in the circle about the traumas that bodies experience through injustice, I think there's a lot of healing work that can happen in the body. And I never thought I'd be one of those people. I'm ha- I'm going through some life transition, <laughs> but God sustains me, and that's mm-hmm. new for me as of March 16th, 2015. The date stuck in my mind for whatever reason, where I was just struck by the realization that there's a power greater than myself and that... I could access such a power. And I came to that through uh, learning about the 12 steps. And then lastly, and this is even more shocking than God, I guess love sustains me. And as a white woman of privilege, when I had a political awakening of everything that was going on in this country, I really struggled about on the question that I think many people are asking themselves, which is what am I supposed to do? What can I do? And I felt like the best thing that I could do was to not exist, which is so sad and such a reflection of unworthiness that I'm working through. In the last few years, it's actually been a surprising gift to have people of color as mentors who love me. I have a woman, Carol B. Bell, the director of the Ashe Cultural Arts Center in New Orleans, who texts me affirmations. And Timothy K. Eatman, co-director of Imagining America, greets me every day when I come into our headquarters, our office, with a hug and tells me, I appreciate you. And there's something powerful that people of color could love me, do love me, despite what's going on, that we can find solidarity and love each other. And there was a great feeling of uh, love across difference in the circle this morning. And we love you, Jamie. We do. (laughs) And I am going to let you love me until I learn learn how to love myself. (laughs) I also have to shout out to God because... 
he, she definitely sustains me in this work. I um, am very humbled by my faith and my walk and all that I have experienced and learned from and continue to learn. And that's where my source of love and power comes from. Hi again, I'm Carrie Ann Sutherland. So my question is, was there ever a time in your life that you wouldn't want to or be able to participate in the circle? Lots of times. <laughs> Lots of times. So the, I, the circle is hard. I mean, the circle mm -hmm. is hard to participate in mm -hmm. because, you know, you're making a commitment to the folks that are in the circle and you're making a commitment to be present and to listen and to speak your truth. So it is hard to participate in the circle, but it's, it's necessary. I think we mm -hmm. don't participate in enough circles. We don't create the space. We don't give ourselves permission to create the space and take the time that we took this morning to have those very, very difficult and deep spiritual and emotional conversations because we, especially those of us that are in the academy, we live in our heads and we are so conditioned by living in our heads and theory and saying the right thing. And the circle gives us permission to not be in our heads and it gives us permission to be vulnerable and to speak our truths. So yes, it's a hard place to go, but it's a very necessary place to go and I'm glad we went there this morning. I shared earlier in the circle today that it's hard not to be consumed with anger when you're doing work like this. And often it's the first option that happens with me because of the person, my high school culinary arts teacher, who helped me realize my voice in this, to use a cliche term, helped me like wake up. Her first response would always be anger as well. And that was because, you know, she's suffered through militant neo-Nazi people at her school, telling her to die straight to her face. And just having to suffer through intense, real interactions with her race and just how she appeared or how she was in spaces. And her first response usually to um, any form of aggression in our high school community was always anger, and I can see why. And I think she imparted a lot of that anger in me when she was teaching me her lessons, and I find it hard not to resort to that anger as a first measure whenever I see something or whenever something happens to someone I love or even to a person in general because it doesn't have to be someone you know it's just when it happens it, it angers you and that's when I have to step back and kind of reflect sometimes I don't do that and I actually let the anger out and I think that can be cathartic and it can also be, help other people see the real impact of what they're saying or what they're doing or their own aggressions if you do use that anger but there have definitely been angry times where I've not entered the circle when I think I should have in order to speak what I know and just share how I was being affected by whatever it may be that was happening. But I think anger is a powerful tool that should be used, but in the context of progress or trying to get stuff done, 
it seems like anger kind of has to be pushed to the side because a lot of people, you know, get offended for the wrong reasons. For example, being in culinary school and having head chefs give you constructive criticism about how, you know, a dish you created looks terrible. <laughs> and you have to take that and you have to be okay with receiving criticism like that. And I feel like that's the same way with people who commit aggressions. If they're serious, I find that to be unacceptable most mm -hmm. times. But when they make or make mistakes, as everyone does, to be able to take that accountability and not run away and realize that that anger is coming from a real place and that would allow a lot of people to enter the circle and kind of vent, I feel like, too. See, I relate to anger, but in a different way, because for me, I would see all this injustice and I didn't know how to process it. So I would bring the anger back on myself. It was then really unhealthy for me to be in the circle. Something that makes me worried about how far along this road as an organizer and as an activist can I go is really my own capacity to hold and see pain in a way that then I won't do things destructive to myself out of the anger. So how can I let the anger out, but also let the love in and find serenity in the fact that, well, see, now I'm just spouting 12 <laughs> steps. I mean, that there are things that we can change and that there are things that we cannot. This is uh, Marion Rossi again. I'm fundamentally an actor by training. And that's what I teach or taught for many years. I now do some other stuff at the university. And it seems like I spent a lot of my life in circle because that's something you do in acting classes, right? <laughs> yeah. You get into critique yeah. circle, you get into sharing circles yeah. and yeah. all those kinds of things. And that's very valuable. And I believe very much in as a pedagogical tool. And without going into too much of the detail, usually over the course of three or four years as you work with students, or at least in the way I structured things and in my experiences, the sort of the nature of the circle changes and deepens over the course of time. Till one of the upper division courses that I taught at Oregon State about fundamentally how to use yourself on stage in ways that are powerful and by addressing things in your offstage life that could translate into your onstage life and vice versa. It's a long kind of story, but the best moments in my life have been in circle. The most memorable moments, because as I started to say just a moment ago, you build up to this, these exercises and in this upper division course that I taught, the sharing exercises actually, every student had a half an hour by themselves with the class to talk about themselves. And it was structured in a way, there were 10 things that you had to touch on. Nobody told you what you had to say about any particular thing, you know. One category was love. You could talk about love in any way you wanted, all right, but you had to talk about love in some way. One category was your perfect meal in perfect circumstances. And all of the 10 kinds of different categories were ways of getting people to talk about things that touched them, moved them, were important in their lives. And I say all that to say this, sharing those half hours, hour after hour over the course of a term, were amazing. Things came out of them that I never would have thought possible. Because, you know, frankly, sometimes you have to find ways to like somebody. All right? Mm -hmm. A student just like a professor can get pretty annoying over the course of time. <laughs> but you know what I learned is there was always a reason. And they would share. 
who they were or something that happened and I would find that moment out and I, or find mm -hmm. that thing out and I would go, oh my God, I love them. I love them. Now I know why he is the way he is or why she talked. You get the idea. Mm -hmm. Because it ultimately the circle for me comes down to one word, compassion. And as the Dalai Lama says, there is compassion and there is everything else. And that's really about what we're doing, I didn't say that quite right, is we're finding ways to carry a circle forward so that we can all, and broaden it and make it bigger and more inclusive so that we can all share and feel more compassion because that's where it begins. And hopefully that compassion leads to love, which deepens it further. Right, for me, anytime when I decide not to be involved in a circle really centers around feelings that I get at the beginning of the process where I feel like the circle will become an isolated incident where everything that was shared in that space will not translate to greater change once we get out of that circle and, and exit through that door. Mm -hmm. And anytime I feel like the impact of the circle is confined to that narrow space, I just say, no, I'm out of it. What I liked about the circle that we participated in earlier is that from the very beginning, we made a proclamation that whatever strong feelings of action that needed to happen would not just stay in that room. It would translate into our own communities and our own circles of life. And that's when I engage. Otherwise, not happening. In y'all's work, what has been the, the lesson? If you could take one lesson, I know there's many, there's always many, but if you could choose, you know, a really resonating lesson that has influenced everything you do, what would that be? I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired by Fannie Lou Hamer. And when I came to know who she was and when she started her activist work, I think she was around in her late 40s or early 50s. And she lived in the segregated South worked very hard, decided one day that she was sick and tired of being sick and tired and she was gonna become an activist, was thrown in prison. And for African-American women at that time, prison was not a nice place for anyone during that time, but particularly for women. Coming to know of her, her life and her story and her strength, because she didn't have to do that. There's a lot of people that can just get by that don't have to speak their truths, that don't have to stand up when they see something is not right. They don't have to rock the boat, but she did. And she had children that she was caring for. I mean, there are a lot of figures during the civil rights movement. I'd look to Rosa Parks, I'd look to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'd look to the folks that we know of. But here's a woman that we didn't know a lot about and she wasn't doing it for visibility. You know, I think it just manifests for her in that moment, and she never looked back. And she's definitely my Shiro. Talk less, do more. That's something that comes out of my experiences in the theater, I think, a little bit. I always used to tell my students, if uh, you spend more than five minutes at the beginning of rehearsal talking about what you're going to do, you're not rehearsing, you're talking. 
And while there's value in talking, we're talking right now, obviously, and we have these circles, ultimately that kind of talking is a sort of doing that leads you to deeper kinds of doing. And I get frustrated sometimes with the amount of times that we have the conversations and we never get to the next step. That's one kind of lesson that I take or that I've learned, or I also think listening. The simple act of listening is the greatest of validations. And that's where I think a lot of, well, it's oversimplifying, but one of the key roots, main roots, I guess I should say, of the problems that we encounter frequently is that people simply don't listen. I want to share something that I observed today in the circle that I think was pretty important with one exception. This was the first time, and this circle lasted for four hours, or three and a half, four hours, and we had one break in there. But in the world that we live in, the thing that struck me the most, again, with one exception, was that nobody had their phone out. Nobody was checking their email. That's a great and profound rarity, I think. One of the most validating things about it. And it was hard, and it went on, and we were hungry, you know? <laughs> and tired. And, and tired, <laughs> But people listened, and that is an essential lesson, I think, of this work. Well, I'm not from around here, but the lesson that I've learned from Apple Shop, and as I've heard it, that it was an inspiration from the Civil Rights Movement that then came to this region, and the message from the Civil Rights Movement was that our voice matters. And it's amazing to me the amount of young people, college students even, who don't believe that their voice matters. Mm -hmm. And even for myself, as someone who comes from relative privilege and have the opportunity to go to college and graduate school, I still have moments where I don't believe that I have a right to speak up, to speak out against injustice. I think that's definitely a driving factor in my work, wanting mm -hmm. to have there be more concentric circles of people understanding that every one of our voices matters. And our lives. One of the lessons that I've learned from my family, whether it's my grandmother, my mother, is that, as I said earlier, an injustice here is injustice anywhere, which is loosely from Dr. Martin Luther King's quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. everywhere. And that really compels me to educate myself, no matter what my status is in society, of what's going on in the community next to me, whether that's a state away or whether that's a country or an ocean away. And I just can't let life go by without educating myself about what's really happening in this world because I don't want to be a part or feed into a system of oppression, no matter where it's happening. And fortunately, I'm lucky enough to do that by smartphones and the world is really more integrated today because of internet and social media. So that's just really a lesson for me and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I think I'm motivated by the Jewish tradition of tikkun olam, which is repairing the world. And so I was wondering if there was a part of your brokenness that you feel like is part of your calling to repair. Or maybe it's a part of brokenness that you feel like is part of your calling. For me, I think the broken part of my life 
along with a lot of people's lives who share experiences similar to me would be a lack of education or a lack of critical education in terms of social justice work especially racial work being white having that not be the forefront of an education or in the education system that pretty much everyone passes through in high school at least and then a lot of times in college too uh, if that's not your focus that kind of informed my life living in Oregon with the neoliberal forgetfulness of that culture in Eugene and then in Oregon as a whole how it's sort of a utopia for ignorance or just romanticizing the culture there and forgetting about the real stuff that has happened and that the community is super bent on forgetting about racial issues by means of colorblindness and perpetuating that in an education that has teachers who are afraid to address those problems and actually bring them up in classrooms where people can have real circle talks or real discussions. And since I grew up in an area like that, and since that was the education I had been fed for my whole life, uh, I feel like that's my main broken part, and that's the part I need to work on at always going out and learning more by means of like self immersion into, I don't know, whether it be literature or whether it be just talking with people, but learning experiences in a way that's not making people of color or marginalized communities have to bleed or share their stories of oppression in order for me to get an education because that's not how it should be. It shouldn't be about people reliving traumatizing moments of their life for you to learn. And that's what I feel like a lot of people, especially white people, resort to in these conversations is having that story that makes them feel bad so they show their remorse and then hopefully learn from that. And that's not how it should be. It should be a personal process where you make it paramount that you go out and you learn and you take it upon yourself to combat the I don't know so that you have less of the vomiting moments where people of color have to pick up the pieces afterwards. With that education, a lot of people uh, remain silent and in those situations, uh, silence is consent in the form of racial oppression especially, but all sorts of other oppressions. If you know about it or you have that realization and you choose to not act on it and you choose to not heal that wound of broken education, then your silence is consent. I feel like that's what I'm still working on. That's what I will always be working on. But that's the main thing in my life. I spoke earlier about my desire to help young people, students, learn to love themselves so that they can love other people more deeply and more fully and more devotedly. And I think that's the broken part of me. I'm better at helping other people learn those things or explore those things than I am at loving myself. And that's what I need to work on, to just accept the things about myself that are just me, that I can't do anything about, and then to distinguish those things that I can and to embrace them so that I become what I want to be and what I should be and what I can be. This is um, a very heartfelt question that you ask. Brokenness as part of my calling what does that mean and why I do the work that I do and my calling has been around 
African-American and Latino men, and particularly the men in my family, which I've come to realize as I've gotten older that God blessed me with two boys, even though I wanted a girl, <laughs> but I was blessed with two boys because of the work that I do. And out of six brothers, five of them have been incarcerated. My father was incarcerated in the U.S. Army. I was actually born here in Kentucky, which is very interesting and surprising that I'm here now. I spent six months here as an infant. My father was uh, stationed at Fort Campbell, and he was in the armed services. He went in at, I think he was 17 when he went in. He had gotten into some trouble with uh, the law. We were living, well, they lived in Fairbanks, Alaska. I wasn't born yet. And his options were to be incarcerated or to go into the armed services because he was a black belt in karate and martial arts. And so he was in the special forces at a very young age. Um, him and my mother were married and three of their daughters were born here in Kentucky and Fort Campbell on the army base. So he was incarcerated in the army in Vietnam, which had a very devastating impact on him on our family, on my parents' relationship. And then my brothers, one was incarcerated in Los Angeles. He was a same gender loving man and his partner was white and he was targeted as a result of that. Another brother was incarcerated at 18 due to peer pressure and doing the wrong things, being in the wrong places at the wrong time. Another brother was incarcerated because of his mental disabilities and anger instead of the type of mental help that he needed to get he was incarcerated and then my youngest brother was incarcerated for standing up for the injustices of immigrant workers so all of my brothers except for one <laughs> were incarcerated and my one brother who was actually an attorney has been harassed by the police for being young black and successful and living in a predominantly white community. So when I think of the Black Lives Matters movement and I think of the injustices that are perpetrated on not only but predominantly men of color in this country and the statistics, one in three African-American men will be incarcerated. Those statistics ring very strong in my family, starting from my father to my brothers. That's part of my brokenness. When I look at my sons, the work that I do is really around how not to repeat that brokenness, because I'm the only sibling that has boys in my family. That's, that's my brokenness and my calling at the same time. Thank you for sharing it's such a gift I'm Jewish, but I woke up Sunday morning in Appalachia feeling like we should be going to church and not to a workshop. But this conversation uh, has felt like part of a spiritual practice and has been very healing. I've spent the last 10 years working to transform structures in higher education that are not healthy. I think I'm only coming to realize that it's connected to the challenging experience I had as an undergraduate where I really felt broken. 
I'm 31 and really feel like there are two parts of my life from when I went to college and from after college. There's the before and the after. And I'm trying to mend that brokenness so I don't feel like I'm living two separate lives. But there, a college was just, it was so difficult to leave a small town in Florida and go to New York City all by myself and miss my family and feel complicated feelings about being isolated and separate and that then I couldn't go back to my community because I learned and talked differently and would have different interests. And it was a lot of money, more money than I could even fathom when I took out student loans. And I felt great pressure that my family was making this great sacrifice. And so I couldn't even feel like I could talk about that I was having such a hard time because I had to put on such a brave face. And the way that I coped as a woman in college was that an eating disorder came over me. And I'm trying to now figure out if part of that experience and really a 10-year battle of recovery might be part of the work that I do in the future. And I'm having a calling perhaps to continue to work in colleges and higher education because I keep thinking of the 21-year-old me that was so affected by having a teacher that told me that I mattered and learning critical thinking and finding allies and getting drawn into a world that had injustice but that had joy and laughter and that we have agency and we can do something about it together. So I'm trying to make a new connection in my work. And as I look at Black Lives Matter, I'm wondering I don't hear a lot about mental illness and recovery and addiction and how those issues might connect to the shootings that we're seeing in the news. And so in our social justice community, I feel like that is an area that's underdeveloped. And I'd like to see more attention on those issues, even though they carry a lot of shame. In this circle, the metaphor of brokenness was very overwhelming to me, whether we spoke about the brokenness of the social justice system or the prison system or fear of when we did break the circle, would the momentum that we felt be broken as well? But another metaphor of brokenness was overall the brokenness of families and how broken families has either motivated us to be involved in this work or whether it has served as a barrier to engage in this work. But for me and my family, there was definitely a time when things were broken. There was an event that occurred and it felt that things in my family were breaking down very rapidly. We didn't have the resources or the tools in place to repair this broken foundation within our family that resulted from this event. But from that event, a lot of healing occurred. From that situation, we really rose as phoenixes as a family. I'm just trying to say that from brokenness comes healing, strength, wisdom, and togetherness. As a family today, we are much stronger because of that 
event that threatened to break the bond and the faith and unit that we had. Today, we're just blossomed as a family into a beautiful unit of warriors. We're getting close to where we need to be done. And at the same time, it's really important that I think we end on a note of joy, a note of happiness, a note of future. And so I want to ask, can you sum up very quickly, was there a moment in your life where the circle magically sort of appeared or brought you awe or amazement, where it worked, where you felt like, oh my gosh, it's there. And we all are part of this giant, amazing circle of life. Any answers? Since coming to Apple Shop for the first time 10 years ago as a student, been coming back several times, numerous times over the years, and a lot of family and friends will say to me, what's in Kentucky that you keep going back? It's the smartest people I know. I've been encircled by people who have taught me how to think critically and how to write and how to make art out of community stories, not just stories from here, but stories from the region. And it's been a gift and I am grateful. I think for me, I've come full circle coming here to Apple Shop because I was born here in Kentucky and I've never been here. I've left at six months old and I always thought about and my movements from California to Connecticut and then to Ohio, it's like I kept getting closer to Kentucky and never had a reason or an opportunity to come here. So when this institute was presented as an opportunity, I just said, well, I have to go <laughs> for a number of reasons. And then experiencing the circle that we experienced while we were here, having the opportunity to have this conversation with the four of you has brought me full circle, I think, in my life. So I think this was meant to be. <laughs> you know, there have been many, many circle moments in my life that have brought me awe. But I think a metaphor that could be used in this situation is the metaphor of drawing a circle by yourself on like a board, a chalkboard or whatever. It's almost impossible to draw a perfect circle by yourself or without any aid. It's almost impossible in the way that it's also almost impossible to make a perfect circle like the one we've experienced in everyday life. But with practice, you get better and practice makes perfect or better yet, perfect practice makes perfect. And if you really just work on that and you try to make those circles all the time, or if you try to make those moments of awe in your life, the more they'll appear naturally and the more you'll get from them as well. Just referring to the theme of things coming back full circle. This is my second time in Eastern Kentucky. And every time I visit here, the mountains get more beautiful. The people become even more embracing to me and more beautiful to me. And being in this place has helped me grow. I just graduated from college, but yet this is the place where I feel like I have made that leap from undergraduate to life after college. And who would have thought it would, a girl from Brooklyn, New York, that transition happened in Eastern Kentucky. So thank you. I don't want to sound Pollyanna or anything, <laughs> but I had a really magical experience at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. in 2014 
on MLK Day. Oregon is about the most monolithically white place that you could ever be. We have some Latino populations. There's a smaller African-American population up in the Portland area and, of course, folks scattered throughout. Going to the National Cathedral for MLK Day, I took a little extra time before a conference to be there because I knew I could have the opportunity and sort of did a number of things related to Dr. King and his message and the movement. And going to the cathedral and being in that space with people of all races and ethnicities and backgrounds and everyone coming together to celebrate a great human being and an essential movement in our history and in our lives was one of the most powerful things that I've ever experienced. There was music, there was dancing, there was worship, there was poetry and spoken word. And I have never in my life felt more awestruck with the connections across humanity that are possible. The circle was made visible to me that day, sitting in a church in Washington, D.C., in celebration of a man who spent his life, along with a lot of other women and men, trying to make something magical and essential happen. And that is something I will carry with me for the rest of my life. I had a short radio show with my best friend back in college, my last semester, and we ended every radio show that we did with shout outs to family or friends, wherever they may be in the world. So, would you guys like to engage, <laughs> guys and gals like to engage with a shout out to anyone? I want to shout out to all the grandparents out there, especially <laughs> those in my life and everybody in my family, because they have given me the strength to be the person that I can possibly be. Thank you for your love. Well, I'll add my grandmothers since everyone's were named here. I have a bubby that's Yiddish for grandmother, Miriam Haft, who lived a hard life, lives a hard life, and my grandmother, Ruth Warner, a woman of dignity. Well, my shout out is to my sons, Zion Haile and Ezra Mosiah and their posses who are probably hanging out in my house right now. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to my loved ones and all the strong women of color who have just influenced my life. Miho, Charlene, Luz, I love you. Thank you. My shout out would be to my family in Jamaica and in New York and wherever else in the world they may be. My posse as well. You know who you are. I love you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Mountain Talk Monday. With real stories, real news, real people radio, this is Kelly Haywood. Have a great evening. <laughs>